Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The participant readings are always a lit fest treat. 2015 was no different. Listen in on this third of three installations of the LitFest Participants Reading, a spectrum of work follows showcasing the depth and variety of the Lighthouse community. When I finally jello wrestle Barbara Walters... I'll hit her hard, I will not falter. I'll pile drive and somersault her. I'll eat the lunch of Barbara Walters. Welcome, everybody. Um, My name is J. Diego Fry. I'm going to introduce um, our readers for you tonight. Um, (laughs) And we have a lot of them. We have 12. That's a dozen, but but not a baker's dozen. A dozen. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to getting started on that. We've got poets and um, and and fiction writers and nonfiction writers and possibly somebody who's writing something that I didn't mention. Um, but we're going to start the evening um, with a. A little tribute to our friend Christy Bailey, um, and well, I'm going to bring up Susanna Donato to uh, to introduce this and say what's going on. Thanks. Thank you, JD. Um, we're we're just um, spontaneously, sort of semi pin spontaneously. Um, doing a a little tribute to our friend Christy Bailey. Many of you um, knew her. She's a long-time lighthouser, um, very active member of our writing community here. Um, Nobody cry because she was tough and hilarious, so let's keep that in mind. Um, And she has been um, fighting a really, really ferocious uh, version of cancer for a couple of years, and she was here at the LitFest opening party, made a huge effort to be here. So many of us were fortunate to spend some time with her and take very funny photos with her in the photo booth. And then a week later on Friday night, she actually um, passed away. And um, so her her physical presence is gone. Her spirit is very much here. It's been kind of um, incredibly moving timing during LitFest while so many of us are together and able to remember her and able to um, be sad and happy together about her presence in all of our lives. She was working on a memoir called um, Penuelo Girl. If you, if you don't remember her name, you might remember her with her headscarves that she always wore, color-coordinated with her clothes and her um, beautiful personality. So um, another friend of hers named Anna March, who lives in California, and I are her literary advisors to her estate, which just basically means that we're writing friends of hers who are assigned to help try to find a home for some of her writing work um, in the coming months. And as many of you probably participated, um, there was a there was a Facebook group called the Christy Bailey Fan Club that a friend of hers started 
when she was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer. And um, so on that page, a lot of people contributed, you know, go Christy kind of stuff or more, more meaningful thoughts about her. And she also posted on there about her um, journey with cancer. And I remember at one point she said, we were pulling the posts off in the hopes of, you know, maybe we'll turn them into something um, someday. And she said she was lamenting that she hadn't written anything. Um, I think on that page, she was lamenting she hadn't written anything. And I said, well, I just pulled all those posts off. And in the last year, you've actually written 65,000 words. <laughs> and she was sort of like, whoa. Um, so, we, so we just wanted to take a few minutes tonight, because so many of us were um, good friends with her, touched by her work. And and um, Lisa Wagner Erickson, who's a friend um, and an active member of a group that Christy and Robin Richie Piz started, that's a writing group um, called Salon Denver. Um, so Lisa's a member of that group, and she's going to come up and just share a few of Christy's posts on that Facebook fan club page before we get get the reading started, so that she's here in spirit for a little while. Thank you. I also want to thank Kara for this idea. Um, I, Susanna had a document, um, I don't know how many thousand words. I narrowed it down from 9,000 to about 2,000 to about 1,500 in the last two nights. So this is going to be kind of a spontaneous reading. Um, and this is all from Christy Bailey's fan page on Facebook. Uh, November 23rd, 2012. Let's see. We all make different choices in life, and no, and, sorry, and no path is better than another. I'm grateful for the life I've led. Not always what I envisioned, not always easy, not always socially acceptable, but always rewarding in the ways I've come to value most. At 45, I don't have a spouse or children, don't own a house or have much of a ret- retirement account, don't have a big title salary or even a benefits package. But I've traveled to 19 countries, resided in 12 U.S. cities, worked in a pub outside London, served in the Peace Corps, run two marathons and five half marathons, completed five triathlons, sprint distance, hiked and snowshoed in more national and state parks than I can count, climbed three 14ers, peaks above 14,000 feet, two in one day, soaked in three of Colorado's natural hot springs as well as in one one in southern Bolivia, earned my MBA and MFA, edited a magazine for stroke survivors and their caregivers, and taught in some form of writing to hospitalized children, homeless youth, homeless youth, and now college students. I've witnessed an active volcano, volcano, stood atop Machu Picchu, wandered through ancient ruins, saw original artworks in a variety of museums around the world, and encountered in their natural habitat a variety of wildlife, including monkeys, sloth, an anteater, toucans, anaconda, pink dolphins, llamas, alpaca, flamingos, whales, bighorn sheep, moose, elk, and a mountain goat. I've mourned the loss of a friend to a drunk driver and another to ovarian cancer and the brother of a friend to suicide, and from these tragedies I've learned that life is short and must be lived fully, and I've done just that. I lost my hair and journeyed to acceptance um, and have written a 300-plus page manuscript about it and through the experiences have found my purpose in life, to create a world where it's okay to be hairless and best of all is that I've experienced much of this with you, my friends and family. And these adventures not only shaped who I am today but have bonded us in ways that cannot be broken by distance or even time. And so during this season of gratitude, I am thankful 
for the gift of life, and for you, the people who make it worth living. So. March 16th, 2013. Today I showered, and it was great. Um, so after Christy had uh, an invasive surgery, surgery in Texas to remove part of her chest wall, she had to have a skin graft from her leg put on her chest. I didn't go into the gory details, um, but this is part of that. The bad news is that day three, it's day three and this leg wound isn't anywhere near scabbing over. I'm guessing it will take at least a week or two, which means I'm going to be running around like granny gone wild for the foreseeable future. Picture an oversized zip-up terry cloth house dress with the left side hiked up to my hip and pinned in place with one of mom's hair clips so the fabric doesn't brush against the wound. Not, as, not exactly as good as uh, leave it to beaver the house sort of look unless you want to wind up in one of those people of Walmart slideshows on YouTube. <laughs> on cold days, I pair the jerry-rigged house dress with thigh-high socks. The good news, I'm drain-free, which unfortunately doesn't feel as celebratory up against the bad news, but still, you've got to mark each milestone. Uh, December 1st, 2013. My resolutions for 2014 aren't going to be about health, because I can't control it. Not really. Instead, I vow to be kinder to myself, more forgiving, more open to gray areas, what lies on the spectrum between black and white, right and wrong, good and bad, success and failure. July 24th, I think this is 2014, Might got the, but as I like to say, I've got 99 problems, but motivation's not one of them. <laughs> March 24th, 2015, remember this summer when all I could talk about was the Denver heat reading, and then all I could talk about was how awesome it was? Well, earlier this month, Lisa Wagner-Erickson and Susanna Donato came over and helped me compile the photos that my sister and Leah's friend took, and we made a collage of the event that is now hanging on my wall. And it is so cool. It makes me so happy. And I got this awesome reminder that in all my pain and suffering, all my pain and suffering is worth it if I can still participate in events like this, even if I can still put together such a beautiful reminder. I say I've lived a good life before cancer, and I really did. But I've also found ways to live a good life uh, with cancer, even as cancer continues to take from me. April 9th through 11th, 2015, you can see numerous pictures of Christy Bailey at the AWP conference, which she and her doctor made sure she went to. Uh, you can go on her fan page and see those. Uh, April 22nd, 2015. Dr. Bashi and I had a teary moment when we talked about how bad off I was at the end of February. We were considering hospice and saying goodbyes and getting the will in order pronto. And how well I'm doing now. Sure, I lose a day or two or a week to pain and have an incredible amount of drugs to take to keep me going, but damn, I feel good. For the rest of the time, and I wasn't sure I would feel good again. I feel so lucky to get this reprieve, so full of gratitude, so full of love, and so rich in general. Christy's cancer stopped responding to chemotherapy in May of this year. On June 11th, she went to Lutheran Hospital, and they got her pain from a 10 to a 3. Um, on that day, I brought balloons, chocolate, and flowers at the request of Christy's mom. And by the time 
I left, Christy was chatting about how her mom did her hair in a 1980s perm that left her look, looking like Gene Wilder. <laughs> um, I'm also happy to report that her best friend, Corey, who stayed with her, said Christy was styling. Uh, she wore pajamas that matched her Crocs, that matched her penuelo. Um, anyway, uh, last post. July, two, July 13th, 2015. This is from Christy's sister on her fan page. I am sad to report that our beautiful sister, daughter, aunt, and friend, Christy Bailey, died at 11.15 p.m. on Friday, June 12th. Surrounded by her immediate family after a full day spent with love from her parents, her sister, her nieces, her brother-in-law, her closest friends, and her beloved Sharpay Tomas. In the last hours, I read her the posts of love from the amazing members of this fan club. She heard your messages. And I would just like to say we heard hers. So thank you. One last thing, I think you can get Christy's personality from the posts I just read. Uh, Lori Sleeper, I think, wrote, I'm, to get through the grief and the pain of losing someone like Christy, you might think of uh, what would Christy do yeah. in situations. So anyway, that's what I'd leave you with. I, I often think, well, what would Christy do in this situation? I'm going to try to do it. So thank you. W W C D C B D Okay. W W C B D That's a book by Shel Silverstein. Um okay, we've got uh as I said, thank you. Thank you to both of you for coming up here and talking. And um we have, uh, and now we're going to move ahead with um, our reading tonight. Uh, we have uh, twelve people to re- uh, to read tonight. We'll we'll do six readers, and then we'll take a break and of about five to seven and a half minutes, and then we'll come back um, and do the the other six. Um, and I would say that um, I was going to make my usual crack about how the last participant reading was so good you have a lot to live up to, but I have a feeling that the energy in this tent tonight is going to kind of blow everything else out of the way, so I'm not going to try that. Um, Our first reader tonight, I believe, is going to be reading some poetry, which I'm excited about. Um, Harriet Stratton. Um, Harriet Harriet wants wants you to know that she, she is the age that she is, but she is a child of Lighthouse. Please welcome Harriet Stratton. And on that note, I'd like to, as a child, I'd like to, to thank Seth Brady Tucker, John Brem, Chris Rancic, Sarah Micus Martin, Rada Markham, my mentors.
on the wing to Oaxaca. We were burning North Park, and along the highway, each electric pole held a raptor in a hungry hunch for the smorgasbord of jackrabbits smeared across blacktop, waiting, first light, which drove fast down mountain shoulders, swept green into the valley. And it was right then that I said something profound, which rang with with, with honesty, like a small, honest, like a small, perfect bell. But I couldn't stop to jot down what I promised to remember, and truthfully I did, until we pulled over to study phalaropes, whirling in the overflow, which launched an escape of ibis. And the perfect line rose too, and dangled in the mist, while the ibis circled, floated down like smoke jumpers, and found balance on one leg. But the fluff of truth kept flying. It happens exactly like that. Eyes meet, upwelling off the coast of Peru, a bioluminescent creature sparks and splits. Love is the smoke. No matter if your shoes walk the streets untied, your chest empty with black song, Walk out in the mornings thirsty, like winter ash. Snow melts even now on a far mountain, eager for horses' green breath. No backup. If it were not for the grayness of the sky, I may have missed the ache of pink at dawn, the papaya flame out of pocked skin. I'm mourning. My emails received and sent evaporated into ether. Somewhere a finger tapped delete. Sure, there were unnecessary forwards. Punctuation excess. <laughs> but those emails from you, gone. Damn it, Comcast. I hate that you're gone. To turn once more to how you got away. Ripples gray onto deeper gray. Our last words were love you. That didn't stop the silence that foamed from your throat. Where does it go? Lost mail? Love? Reasons to love? 
Now hail pelts my tulips. Red petals spill icy stones. Puddle to mud. Thank you, Harriet. You know, um, uh, when, I, when I get a chance to teach um, kids poetry and we talk about reading poetry, um, I always tell them, read slower than you think you should. That was a, a picture-perfect reading of that poem. Thank you. And it also made me think that probably every single person in this room um, could, with no prompting, write a poem titled Damn It Comcast <laughs> well, I had some critique <laughs> and it was suggested that maybe I take out that poem <laughs> so up, up next our next reader uh, is Maura Weiler Weiler right Maura Weiler um, <clears throat> Maura is a, a trash artist and former film executive who helped develop the screenplays for such films as Speed, Twister, and Minority Report. These, these are all films I've seen. <laughs> touted, touted by Library Journal as a fast-moving yet philosophical, a fascinating debut, Weiler's novel, Contrition, was published by Simon & Schuster in April and is now in its fourth reading, fourth printing, fourth printing. And I, I want to point out that um, my book also was published in April, and it's, I think it's still in its uh, first half of a printing. Um, please welcome Maura Weiler. I love the snapping. I've never seen it before. I'm all about it. Um, it was a poetry thing. Oh, I feel so fancy now. Yes, please. Snapping only. Um, well, I apologize. Apparently, I double-dipped because I signed up for this before I knew that I was going to be invited to read yesterday. So, Contrition's back there, and you should buy many dozens of copies. I'd be happy to sign it. But this is actually from the book I'm working on now called Santa Pimp. So, it's a little different. And... Uh, <laughs> yeah... And the lead character, Casey, takes a job managing the real bearded Santas for the malls across the country. And she starts on her first day, she actually starts during Easter Bunny season. So where I'm reading here, she's talking to the costumer about the Easter Bunny. We hand shampoo and brush all the bunny suits and heads when they come back. But I'll probably throw this puketastic one out, Glinda said, holding up a bunny head with vomit crusted around the mouth. I shuddered. The bunny's wide smile and hollow eyes were all the more tragic given the sick on his furry pink cheeks. It came back from California last week, from the same mall where the bunny lost his carrots last year. Where the bunny did what? I asked. Lost his cool, blew his cover, flipped the hell out, she said. The bunny suit gets crazy hot. This particular bunny had been outdoors in the sun for almost 10 hours. When he started feeling nauseous, the set manager closed a few minutes early with 25 people left in line. I'm guessing the customers didn't like that very much, I said. Not even a little bit. 
One of them even film one of them filmed the whole thing. There's no sound, but you'll get the picture, she said. <laughs> Glinda queued up a YouTube clip on her computer. The scene looked pleasant enough. A costumed Easter bunny in neck-to-toe white shearling sat outdoors in a giant wicker chair, resting on a carpet of fake green grass. Baskets of plastic eggs and a six-foot stuffed fuzzy yellow chick decorated the set. Several customers in line squinted and fanned themselves. We have outdoor sets in California and Florida, Glinda said. That means limited shade and no air conditioning. The costumed bunny gestured wildly towards the little girl in his lap. What's he saying to her, I asked. Nothing. They aren't supposed to talk, but they have to gesture a lot. If they just sit there, the head tips down at a weird angle and it looks like dead bunny. <laughs> Moving is good, I said. As the child's mom cavorted to get her attention, a heavyset woman in a pink, sweat-stained Oxford shirt and blue bow tie snapped a photo. That's the, that's the set manager, Mrs. Easter Bunny in this case, Glinda said. We have a lot of husband and wife teams at Christmas where the guy plays Santa and the woman is set manager. Sometimes it happens at Easter, too. The bunny gave the little girl a blue plastic egg and helped her down while her mother paid for the photos. As soon as they left, the bunny tottered over to his wife to chat. Mrs. Bunny then went to the front of the line, and rather than ushering in the next group, a ten-year-old twin boys and their brawny, bald father, she took a hold of the red velvet rope and clipped it across the entrance. This is the part where she tells Mr. Clean he's not getting a photo after waiting an hour, Glinda said. Note the frustration. <laughs> it was hard to miss The father turned pink and started yelling Next the set manager must have said something the customer didn't like Because the bald man turned from pink to crimson Took her by the shoulders and shook her Mr. Bunny, who had been heading into the mall Raced over and put himself between his wife and the customer The man had no qualms about switching his wrath From the wife to the costumed character Spittle flying from his mouth Within seconds, the bunny pulled off his head, threw it to the ground, and yelled right back at Mr. Clean. It was hard to know what distressed the kids in line more, the fighting or the fact that the Easter bunny turned out to be a thin-cheeked, pale-faced man drenched in sweat and looking ready to hurl. Several kids started crying, causing parents to scuttle them away from the set, while other moms and dads were too dumbfounded to remove their children. (laughs) The yelling escalated to chest-bumping and then shoving, Before long, the customer threw a punch that hooked exposed Bunny under the chin and sent his real head wobbling. Bunny threw off his blocky paws to hit back, and he and Mr. Clean rolled around on the set, knocking over flowers, sending plastic eggs flying. A a few shrewd kids scampered around collecting the eggs and the toy prizes inside, (laughs) careful to avoid the fight and the six-foot stuffed chick that swayed from side to side in the commotion. (laughs) Mrs. Easter Bunny didn't attempt to stop the melee, But Mr. Clean's horrified twins stepped in and capitalized on the momentum of the already swaying chick, pushing it on top of their father and his furry opponent to end the fight. Seconds later, the screen went black. As Glenda closed the video, I swallowed the shock and awe expletives rising in my throat and glanced at the time. It was 9.12 a.m. I'd been able to dismiss the red flags of Angie's obvious burnout being told by the accounting ladies that I was in for it, and the nasty break room easily enough. But exactly 72 minutes into my first day, the bunny brawl made it official. Taking this job had been a ginormous mistake. It's 
called the Santa Pimp? Santa, Santa Pimp. Just Santa Pimp. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just like Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might, I'm going to use a pen name. <laughs> Thank you, Maura. Up next, we have Sarah Allen. Uh, you're all familiar with her. Sarah Allen is, well, <laughs> you are any, any of you who, you know, were here that night are all familiar with her. Sarah Allen is one half of the Novelistas, which is a a duo that produces original comedy and offers coaching and performance uh, skills for writers and others. Yeah. I've heard this too. Sarah has completed a young adult contemporary manuscript titled Spontaneous Combustion, and it was a winner of the Pikes Peak Writers Contest. Um, But today she's going to be reading from a new project about a competition like last comic standing, but for teens. Please welcome Sarah Allen. Move it, dumbasses of the world. Shit, 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 shit. I'm so late. And on the biggest night of my life, of course, Lakeshore Drive traffic can suck it. Can I ever do anything right? Check that. I can and I am. I might smell like soy and wasabi and I'm surviving off three hours of sleep, but at least I look amazing. When I'm finally parked, I gather my giant bag of essentials. Makeup, hairspray, professional grade curling iron, backup top in case I pit out of this one too soon, Red Bull, chocolate covered peanuts, cinnamon bears, and joke journal. I speed walk across the Northwestern campus. Superstars don't run and I am a superstar. The world just doesn't know it yet. Checking in for the contest, I feel my bra line is a little damp. The sweat rings under Lucy and Ethel already forming. (laughs) I'm all smiles and energy when I go backstage to the green room, excited to meet the other contestants. But I'm greeted with a wall of crossed arms and lukewarm nods. It's all guys except for me and one other woman. I say to the room, ooh, it's serious in here. This is the college comedy contest, right? Or did I walk into an episode of Game of Thrones? Is one of us about to die? I receive receive a bunch of nothing and one or two eye rolls, but at least the other chick and a tall, model, handsome guy give me a small laugh for my effort. Hey, I'm Seth, the production assistant, the tall, handsome guy says. Hopefully it's not such a tough crowd out there. I'm Stella. Nice to meet you. Stella, eh? That name bodes well for you. Born to be a star? He says and does that sexy eye squinch thing as he smiles, revealing stunningly white teeth. Definitely a model. Is he flirting with me? I affect my best southern debutante voice. Wow, Mr. Seth, I do declare you are too kind. I wave a hand in front of my face as if the compliment has me in a tizzy, which it kind of does. He's so tall. Well, Stella, you want to go first after the MC's opener? Uh, No. Thank you so much for that offer. I flutter my eyelash extensions. Uh, sorry, I said that wrong. The order was randomly selected, and you're on first. Ready? Oh, I see. Then, hell yes, first is the best. I say, giving some fist pumps to the sky, and then immediately hope this wasn't a mistake in the sweaty, sweaty pit-revealing department. I'm not so sweaty in everyday life, but I get the nervous performing sweats real bad. The MC finishes up his opening, and I and then I hear the glorious sound of my name being announced through the speakers. Give it up for Stella Wilson! I'm never more comfortable than when I'm on stage. I don't think about sweat rings. I don't think about what other people think of me. I don't think about working four jobs and never sleeping. I don't think about anything. I'm just alive, connecting to other humans, being my best self, driving the joy train. 
I'm nearing the end of my five-minute set. Last summer, I was in New York City, temping for high-fashion magazines. I started at Glamour, which, and it was indeed very glamorous, and everyone who worked there was also glamorous. Like, in order to work at the magazine, you also had to be able to model in it, just in case. At Vogue, they made very important phone calls all day long, like the one I overheard about a photo of a, one of the models. Hillary, we can't use it. Her nipple is huge. Click. <laughs> Poor models. And they're unruly areolas. <laughs> Before I get to the third magazine, a guy near the front of the auditorium says loudly, Get off the stage, you fat lesbo! I'm shocked. My heart starts beating wildly. I've never been heckled before, and lesbo? Dude, at least keep your insults from this decade. The words start coming out of my mouth without me thinking, my voice light and sweet in the microphone. <gasps> Thank you so much for saying I look like a lesbo. You're really a class act. I actually just moved to Chicago to pursue my greatest goal, which is to become a lesbian. You must understand, sir, seeing as you're trying so hard to fulfill your own dream of being a giant dick. <laughs> but only having the teeniest one. <laughs> the audience is on my side. They're laughing, and I feel charged up by the high of veering off my set to, to shut this douchebag down. I figure it's best to end my set there, and I say, thank you so much, enjoy the rest of your show, and speed, off, speed walk off stage, feeling like I just did an adrenaline keg stand. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was great. Um, and I'm not sure, but I think I saw the unruly areolas open for um, <laughs> the Smiths. <laughs> um, our next reader is uh, Susan Knutin, Um and she's got she's got the pronunciation right there. Canoe ten. Susan Knuten is a, is a commercial actor and voiceover artist and as the co-founder of Denver's long-running Impulse Theater, which is impressive as hell, um, she's appeared in more than 2,000 improv shows and has taught hundreds of workshops. Um, she is the other half of The Novelistas yeah, with Sarah, who just read. Um, it says it right here in her, bio, in her bio. With Sarah, who just read. <laughs> Tonight she'll be reading from Flunda, a novel she's been working on as a member of the book project uh, here at Lighthouse. Please welcome Susan Knutin. Hello. Um, so anybody who was at Grand Lake last year heard this, and you're going to hear it again. <clears throat> Last year it was brand new, this year it's a year old. <laughs> and I'm going to go for the mic too, just because it's more comfortable. All right, so what you need to know is my heroine's name, or the protagonist's name is Annalisa, but she goes by Anne. Um, she is the daughter of two Danish immigrants, one of whom her mother is named Bertie, and her father, who is now deceased, is named Olaf, and her husband's name is Dan. And I think that's probably all you need to know. After Olaf, her father, finished high school, he moved to Copenhagen to attend the university there. Henrik had helped him get a job in the city during the summer before school started, which suited Olaf just fine. He was young and ready to have some fun. He sublet a furnished flat near the city center and moved his few belongings. On the second day, he met Bertie. 
I had the flat next door to him's. He came out his door as I was unlocking mine and we saw each other. Our eyes met and without saying a word, he followed me into mine flat, shut the door, and we began to make love up against the wall. <laughs> ah, what? Did she say they just started banging each other before they even said hello? No, Mom, no. Mom, really, that is TMI. Well, it is the truth. Your father's was very sensual man's with a beautiful penis. He had a very thick, straight pink shaft. We could not help ourselves. Our sexual power was immense. Anne thought she was going to go her whole life without knowing what her papa's penis looked like. Anne was wrong. It was all she could do not to stick her fingers in her ears and scream, la, 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 la. I get the point, Mom. You don't have to give so much detail. Annalisa, don't be such a prude. Bertie got out a cutting board and started to slice two red apples. I hope you are being sure to pleasure Dan as you shoulds. Slice. A man has certain needs in his penis and will not be able to function in his minds if you do not pleasure his penis enough. Slice. I am not going to discuss my sex life with you, Mom. Move on with the story, please. Okay, well, I tell you this. Slice. Because you must understand that we were making much loves with each other. It was normal to have four or five times every day. Slice. Not like it was before your father died when it was only one or two each day. Slice. <laughs> Bertie and Olaf screwed twice a day in their 50s? Uh, and how was it that they were having sex way more often than Anne? Was there something wrong with Anne? Wait, why was she even considering that? She knew there was something wrong with Bertie. Bertie might be her mom, but she was a freak of nature. Well, we thought it was safe because he had his penis fixed with surgery just a few months before we met. Slice. You know this penis surgeries that I'm talking about? Slice. You mean a vasectomy, Mom. That's what it's called. Slice. Yes, yes, a penis vasectomy. She picked up half of the apple slices and distributed them onto the plates. It's not a penis vasectomy. It's just called a vasectomy. You don't have to keep using the word penis. Well, there's nothing wrong with the word penis. You must grow up, Annalisa. The rest of the apple slices went on the plates. Whatever, just go on, please. Bertie sat on the stool next to Anne. Well, after one month, I start to feel sick in my stomach. So I go to doctor and they tell me I have baby. I could not believe it. I ask your father, why I have baby if you have the penis vasectomies? He could not explain, but he knows the baby is his because there's not enough time in the days for me to have another penis <laughs> inside my vagina. <laughs> Okay, so the only reason I'm here is because of a botched vasectomy? Well, what is botched vasectomy? Is that different from penis vasectomy? No, Mom, it's the same thing. Anne got up and walked around the counter toward the sink. It just means it didn't work right. It means the vasectomy didn't work because whatever they snipped inside him grew back together and you made a baby because he put his penis inside your vagina. Anne picked up the cutting board and slid the fruit detritus into the disposal. Yes, yes, that is right, my love. Bertie, who had completely missed the sarcasm in Anne's tone, was satisfied that she had finally been understood. 
Thank you, Susan. Yeah, amen. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. Our next um, our next reader up tonight is um, a longtime, uh, wonderful lighthouse friend and volunteer and uh, student and novelist and uh, Marie Kaufman. Where is she? Um, Marie Marie Kaufman is reading from the opening chapter of her novel in progress, which is titled A Thin Veil. Uh, she's a writer and educator. She lives in Longmont with her son, Deacon. Please welcome Marie Kaufman. Hi. Chapter 1, Iowa Burns. She'd hope he'd wake. She wanted his eyes to open so that he'd see her through the blaze, see her seeing him. She wanted him to know what was happening to him and that it was her making it happen. But he just lay there burning, passed out drunk, his skin liquefying. Still, she enjoyed the look of those orange flames and goddamn that smell. It wasn't kerosene, just about the sweetest scent she had ever come across. She was even a bit proud of herself for not spilling one drop when she hauled the can in from the shed. Her hands hadn't once shaken, all on account of her doing the breathing exercises Mama had taught her. Walking back from the yard, she'd focused on the weight of the can in her hand. It tethered her to the ground, and that foundation and her breathing in and breathing out held her nerves. There had been only a slight cramp when she released her grip on the handle and set the can on the floor. He hadn't even noticed that can sitting next to his second-best easy chair. Of course, she damn well knew he wouldn't, like she knew he'd come home drunk, like she knew he'd take her in the bedroom, like he always did. She had been at the sink, both her hands deep in water, soapy and lukewarm. He stumbled over the mat at the back door. God damn it, he said, I told you to move that. She didn't bother to look at him, but she couldn't help but smell him. Cow shit, cigar smoke, and frustration clung to him like dust clung to the curtains. Where's Pepper, he asked. Asleep in the parlor, she said. What the hell are you waiting for, he asked. I'm home, ain't I? Put those down and get in there. She dried her hands on her dead mama's cornflower blue apron, dropped the dish rag in the sink where it sunk into the brown suds, and headed toward the bedroom, untying the apron as she went. Crossing the threshold, she made sure to drop that apron right there in front of his ugly old easy chair, right in front of the spot where the can hid. He came in behind her and shoved her toward the bed. Come on already, he said. His words slurred. He took off his hat and dropped it onto the easy chair and shut the door behind him. When he passed out, she waited. There was no clock to let her know what time it was, but she sensed the night changing. The sounds outside the window shifted. The wind stilled. The owls, burrowed in the barn's overhead bales, took up call. Dark, hungry creatures rustled through the bushes behind the house. They'd find the chicken coop locked up tight and build up a frenzy scratching at its wood gate. All this she heard as she waited. First she jabbed him with her toe. Nothing. Then she pinched the slack skin below his elbow. Nothing. She got up real slow. What luck that he had come home angry. Any hesitation she might have felt erased by his thrust and his squeeze and his goddamn filthy fingernails. She rolled and let his arm fall to the bed. She waited. Nothing. She shuffled her bare feet across the crowing floorboards, stopped at the can, listened. Nothing but his low, gritty breathing. She unscrewed the already loosened cap. It squeaked a bit, so she waited again. 
Nothing. She bent down and grabbed the apron with her free hand and turned toward him. He hadn't moved a bit. She shuffled back, her hands steady. At the bedside, standing just over him, she poured a solid stream from the can directly onto him. He was still. She poured some more. From the apron's pocket, she took out the matchbook. No longer worried one bit about the splatter on the floor, she rolled the apron and drenched the tip of it with what remained in the can. Then she'd struck a match and touch it to the material of her mama's apron. When the flames spread out and caught that ship-brown chair in their caress, she was satisfied. She walked out of the room, careful to close the door behind her. She headed down the hall to Pepper, fast. Wake up, Pepper, she said as she leaned down beside the girl and shook the bare arm hanging from the sofa. We gotta go. Go away, Celeste, Pepper said. Her voice came muted, thick, through a heavy and matted clump of unwashed blonde hair. Get up and get dressed, she said. She pushed off her haunches, slapped the girl on the thigh. We gotta go right now. The house is burning. Pepper sat upright, the scalp lace straps of her nightgown falling from her thin shoulders. Her gold eyes opened big and curious, not frightened, never that. What? she asked, pushing the blanket off and swinging her legs to the floor. You heard me, Celeste said. House is burning and there ain't no time. Get dressed now. She threw back the rolling cover of the small wooden desk that stood beside the sofa and yanked out the clothes. Put these on. She threw the pile to her sister. Clumsily, hopping on one leg and then the other, Pepper pulled the overalls on, tucking her nightgown down into the denim legs. She threw the sweater on and fumbled to button it. What about Daddy? Pepper asked. She turned her head to the right and then to the left. She seemed dismayed that this motion didn't materialize the man she was looking for. Where's Daddy? Daddy, Celeste said. He's in there. She pointed through the open doorway, past the kitchen in the direction of the bedroom, the length of the whole house down the slant of her finger. Well, what the hell are you standing here for? Pepper asked. We gotta go wake him. She made to run, but Celeste put a hand on her shoulder. Can't go that way. That's where the fire is. Besides, there ain't no need. Celeste shook her head as if that closed the discussion. She threw a pair of boots at her sister. What do you mean there ain't no need? Pepper asked. Get a bucket of water or something. I already told you, Celeste said. We can't go that way. We've got to get out of here. Right now. There's no saving your daddy. He's already burned. Thank you. Uh, that, that's from the novel called A Thin Veil. Thank you, Marie. Um, we have, we'll do one more reader, and then uh, as soon as she's done, we'll take a, a, a little break. Um, our sixth reader of the evening is Leah Woodall. Um, where is she? Um, Leah is a recent transplant from Denver to Houston, from, from Denver to Houston, and she's, uh, as you might imagine, thrilled to be back for Lit, Lit Fest, for Lit Fest. For lit, thrilled to be back for Litfest. Um, Houston has not been too hospitable. Uh, w- what with three ER visits for her husband, um, a dead computer, there was smoke involved, <clears throat> and uh, the week before heading here, uh, her car was uh, ruined in the Houston floodwaters. Leah writes memoir and personal essays, so Houston is earning space on her page, and. Um, <laughs> Her husband has expressed concern that she's not getting on the plane come Saturday. Please welcome Leah Woodall. 
Um, just a brief little thing. I'm I'm wearing one of Christy Bailey's Penwellas. Um, um, she made a point of um, for people who had asked to um, pick out a particular Penwello and a story to go with it. Um, and this one was with her in the Peace Corps um, in Honduras. Her mom had cut up a sarong and made two of them. And so she gave one to me because it was a twin. Um, but the story was that the other one, she doesn't know what happened to it. And so this is a twinless twin, which is my story. And I took it back to Honduras a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm not reading about that, but um, anyhow. Um, and these are new progressives, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Uh, a new year. Dad picked me up at Sky Harbor Airport in late December 1991. I'd flown in from D.C. We drove to his modest but roomy two-story, five-bedroom house on Lindner Avenue in Mesa, Arizona. Pretty empty now. Just Mom and Dad and the cats. My youngest brother, Jimmy, had finally bought his own place and had moved 20 miles east, closer to the Purple Superstition Mountains. My younger sister, Jenny, had moved to Las Vegas, staying dry in that desert oasis in NAA. My middle brother, David, had bounced from friend to friend since February, carrying a tape recorder everywhere he went, off our radar altogether by year's end. My twin brother, Larry, well, we'd spread his ashes on a ridge overlooking Canyon Lake up the Appalachian Trail, I'm sorry, the Apache Trail, a hike we'd all taken on January 12th. Mom, are you sure you want to do this on your birthday? That day, we'd dodged the teddy bear cactus and eyed each other like hawks on the ridge, making sure no wonder no one wandered too close to the edge. Someone might fall off, maybe even jump. Larry had shot himself ten days earlier, and David had admitted that he'd been thinking about slitting his wrists too that very day. In mid-February, I'd flown back to Arizona for a family intervention with a mental health agency that hadn't told us that it was their first time doing one. David walked into his anger corner and out of our lives, left most of his belongings in that house, where they are still today, stuffed in a room behind a closed door some 22 years later. That house... I was afraid to enter it in late December 1991, to breathe in the air grayed with grief and mom's cigarette smoke, to feel life cut short. But the end of that tumultuous year was approaching, and I hoped its closure would release me from the grip of my twin brother's suicide. I hoped that traitor wouldn't be the last word ever spoken to me by David. I'd return to face some ghosts. Ostensibly, I was there for my best friend's wedding on New Year's Eve, a happy occasion that should have buoyed me. But she hadn't asked me to be part of her wedding party, even though she'd been part of mine, both times I'd married. I understood her right to that decision, even as it devastated me. Many people viewed me as the grim reaper that year, bearer of bad news, whose sad sickle might slice your happiness in half. My consolation prize, for which I was grateful, was a private audience with her at a Scottsdale resort, following her gleeful pampering of nails and hair with her entourage. We drank leftover champagne and picked at a salad of fresh produce. Her hair was cut short and curly, and she looked beautiful and deserving of love. 
I wore waterproof mascara and smiled so I'd look like she remembered me. I'd worn waterproof mascara just the week before, before on the occasion of my fifth wedding anniversary. I wore it with the sheer red stockings and garter belt my husband had given me for Valentine's Day that year in some hopeful, maybe desperate gesture, unfulfilled. All those months later, there they still lay hidden in sheets of tissue embossed with golden crowns. The afternoon of December of our December anniversary, I'd taken them out and draped them over my right arm. Their silkiness stabbed me. All the pain of my separation from my twin had lodged itself in my right arm, which Larry yanked and twisted from some other world, insisting that I follow or lose it altogether. And so much of that year I'd wanted to follow. But I was almost through that tumultuous year, 1991. I took my red designer suit out of the closet and held the stockings up behind it, letting the formed feet dangle into my red shoes. I considered my ruby self in the full-length mirror. The shades didn't clash. I can do this, I decided. So my husband and I dined at a fancy restaurant in D.C. and slow danced to Lady in Red, laughing and flirting like hopeful lovers. But when the music ended and we returned home and paid the sitter and crawled into bed and my husband leaned in to kiss me, he brushed up against my right arm. And the fire of the evening turned to thoughts of a bullet in the heart. Wait, I whispered. When I come back from Arizona, it will be a new year. Thank you, Leah. Thanks very much. This is a poem titled, um, this is a poem, um, I should say, I, I wrote a book, um, a book of poetry called The Year the Eggs Cracked, and it um, came out in April, and it's available in the back shelf. It's, it's not quite in its fourth printing yet. And this poem is called um, What I Want the Aliens to Do. The, the next time the space aliens land in our town, I hope that they kidnap Dave T. from the bank. <laughs> He's been such an asshole to me all around. So the next time the space aliens land in our town, if they could abduct him, yank his pants down... <laughs> And if not outright probe him, (laughs) at least a good spank. (laughs) The next time those space aliens land in our town, I hope they kidnap my boss Dave from the bank. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, We had six more to go. Our first reader of the second half of our um, of our reading tonight is Kelly Thompson. Um, woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Kelly Thompson is currently working on a memoir in progress titled "Oh Darling Girl." Uh, as the narrator struggles to face down a transgenerational legacy of violence, addiction, and shame, the lives of children and grandchildren hang in the balance, and heartbreaking choices must be made. 
Um, Kelly writes across genres and has been published at Manifestation, The Writing Disorder, 49 Readers, 49 Writers, and other publications. Um, Kelly will not be reading from her memoir tonight. She's going to read uh, four poems for us instead. Please welcome Kelly Thompson. Demeter and Persephone. I wear the purple jacket again, go to find you, descend the familiar seven steps to the subway, stopped short at the Cerberus style, digging in my jeans, I swear I had a ticket. Once again turned back, I scribble graffiti on the walls, spell your name three ways, give the homeless coffee in my coat, but only if they listen, I show them your picture. The street gods never listen, shake their heads, but one, Dees Pater, looks my way, flags us a taxi, drives a hard bargain before he dumps me off back at the entrance. I wait at the top of the subway station, hold out the verdant dress ripped off, left soiled on your bed. The night you vanished, crushed velvet, I thought you were dead. As soon as I see you, cherry blossoms bloom all over New York. This is weird because these are reading glasses. And okay, let me try this. Okay, <laughs> so you guys are all blurry. Okay, <laughs> and sitting on commodes. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Backyard secrets. There are too many secrets stuffed in the bags, along with the banana peels, lemon rinds, fruit flies. We take one out to the curb, hoping for pickup. The trash man comes every Tuesday. But the rotting bag stays there. We pull a a few secrets out, dust one off, hang it up on the clothesline. But our shame is too great. We build a huge tent, elephant-sized, hiding it, containing the clothesline, all of its contents. The rest of the millennia spent keeping a wide berth, mowing the perimeter, feeding the incinerator. But the lies never burn choking instead, sending toxic fumes up. The neighbors begin to move. This all took place in a yard, fenced in, chain link. Pass the peas. The first punch. When your mother sent you to school with a black eye and a story, Later, when she asked what you told them, I fell down the stairs as coached. Why did you lie? She screamed, rising up from her chair. That was the true blow. Earlier, to my father, look what I did to her this time. She hid me in my room, an Eskimo pie for dessert. Dinner she served on a tray. The taste of ice cream and chocolate mixed in with tears. The tender flesh that swelled around my eye. My father walking away down the hall. The last punch. Many years after the bruises have faded, after the batterer, the stalker, the sadist, a woman sits down at the table that did not set a place for her. She picks up a knife, a fork, says, pass me the peas, motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) This one is... um, Shape of a Song, and 
um, was generated in Richard Froud's uh, hybrid class. Who stole it from me, Father? Fear of the water is inborn in some. Your great-grandmother was a witch. You're just like her. Her power lay in the words she controlled. She had a pack of wolves, a swarm of bees, a murder of crows. Father said she read his fortune in tea leaves, but when she looked into Jean's cup, she turned, refused to tell. She wanted a pair of silver shoes. It's a gift, she told him. You'd have to sell your soul to the devil. But even she was afraid of the dark. The witch's daughter told the great-granddaughter how it would be. She sang her into the shape of a song. She lived so long that a little girl could outwit her. Father would not spill the water, though the creek ran high. The wicked witch of the West was destroyed by water. The place we would step into the current will not come again. But first, she starved the cowardly lion. In the wagon, they carried their most prized possessions, a guitar and a fiddle. The witch's daughter rode shoeless. The witch foretold that men would land on the moon. She saw the writing on the wall. She named their firstborn, but they declined the gift. They preferred a new rhythm. In time and space, they gave their children something blotted, blank, something human, where before a melting witch lay steaming on the floor. Father, said the daughter, I still carry her bequest. The remnants of fires lay banked around them. You were born without a soul, he said. Consequent bastard, he said. The silver shoes I have thrown in the ocean. Okay. Thank you, Kelly. I just love it when poets read. Sorry, I'm biased. Um, pass the peas, motherfucker. I like that. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Um, our next reader is Kara Scharschmidt. Am I getting that right? Yes. Where's Kara? Kara. Kara Scharschmidt. Kara Forlis Scharschmidt is a Colorado native and a Denver resident who's been a marketing copywriter for 20 years, almost 20 years. She fairly recently ventured into the world of, as she calls it, real writing. Um, much of this with the help of workshops here at Lighthouse. Kara is part of Megan Daum's juried workshop this week and will be reading from a personal essay entitled Crash the Hummingbird, part of a collection of essays she's hoping to finish by next year. Please welcome Kara Scharschmidt. Thank you. I had the choice during the break to either go to the bathroom or have another glass of wine, and I chose the latter. So I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. You guys can tell me. Okay. My younger sister glares at the elderly woman in my dad's living room. The woman sits across from us, perched on the edge of a leather sofa, speaking and strung together sentences as if we are trying to interrupt instead of sitting in abject silence. None of it is making much sense except for the part about how much this is going to cost. She's crystal clear about that. My younger sister sits next to me on the matching love seat, clutching her tiny daughter. I'm close enough to feel the heat 
emanating from her skin, from her reddening face, and I watch her nails make white impressions in the baby's arm, then release, and then press down again. My blonde niece's chubby face twists, but she does not cry, somehow having gained enough intuition in her 15 months as a human to know that right now would be a really bad time to lose it. If I didn't know my little sister so well, I would reach out and place a hand on her knee or touch her shoulder, an instinctual effort to soothe, but a move like that would only boil her over. She's never responded well to tenderness. Besides, our mom is dead, and we have a funeral to pay for, and I need my sister to put this on her credit card. We are meeting with the funeral people, my two sisters, Frank and I, in the home of my father and stepmother, because it is the halfway point between where my older sister and I live in Denver and where my mom and Frank were living down south, and because the funeral director has recently switched to a virtual funeral home. She said it like it was the wave of the future, but it turned out later that she had been evicted. (laughs) I imagine my dad and my stepmother alternately listening at the top of the stairs of their spacious home to check on us as we sit in a circle in the lower-level family room subject to our uncomfortable one-sided conversation. While the pastor sitting next to her fights off sleep, the funeral director is still rambling. I don't try to control my stare in her direction. She can't be less than 75, and it's an old 75, her age hanging from her petite frame like saggy coveralls. Several months' worth of white, frizzy roots fight to cover her veiny skull, gradually giving way to a nest of neglected, faded auburn curls. She's a melting strawberry ice cream cone, her unkempt pink hair dripping down the sides of her pale, lined face. Her tan polyester pants sit cockeyed at the elastic waist where a half inch of Depends sticks out, creating a soft white belt around her nursing home casuals. I long to reach out across... I'd long to reach across and fix her slacks the way I would for a child wandering around in twisted pajama bottoms, but I'm sure that would be inappropriate. In the same arena of inappropriateness, it also occurs to me that she should be planning her own funeral instead of one for my 53-year-old mother. Under normal circumstances, I would smirk and point this out to one or both of my sisters, reprising my traditional family role as comic relief, but I managed to keep it to myself. For once. In three months, this frail woman will be in jail for neglectful funeral practices and stealing money, but for the time being, she still owns the longest running funeral home in my hometown of Colorado Springs, virtual as it now may be. Though she has already made the cardinal mistake of telling my sister how to feel and annoyed me with her lack of professionalism, we are her captive audience and she thinks she is in charge. Someone should warn her that we are a tough group to be in charge of. My little sister has been angry since I've known her. Even as a baby, she was withdrawn and shrieky, her face frequently clenched into a tight red grimace, her body writhing away from hugs and snuggles. There is very little that she thinks is funny, and she's famous in our family for knowing exactly how to crush someone with words, exactly which button to push you, exactly which button to push to cut you to your core. My older sister is also a wreck. My mom was not her biological mother, but adopted her and raised her on and off during the parts of her life when she would let anyone get close to her. At this moment, forced to deal with actual emotion, she looks close to fleeing. 
And this would technically mark the second mother she's lost. While I have spent a large portion of my adult life thinking I'm better than both of them, I'm now not so sure. I'm 30 and broke and was recently told by the deceased that I never take anything seriously. And just three days ago, I was pondering breaking up with Mike, knowing full well he's the best thing that has ever happened to me. Frank sits sits straight in a hard wooden chair on the other side of me. And much like on Sesame Street, he is one of these things that is not like the other. He is a brown-skinned Latino cowboy with a salt-and-pepper brush of a mustache and glinty green eyes. His wranglers are creased from his handiwork with an iron, and his boots, while clearly working boots, have been brought to a shine for the occasion. My mom was engaged to marry him until this past Sunday. He was the one who was there when everything went down, the one who heard it all happen from his perch on a stool at the town bar. The one who, with the help of, of a bunch of other drunk cowboys, crawled down into the ditch and rolled an upside-down Hyundai SUV off of my mother's chest. On Sunday, the day before Labor Day, the last day I was someone's spitting image. Thank you, Cara. Our next reader of the night um, is uh, Suzanne Sainer. Am I saying that right, Sainer? Okay. Hi, Suzanne. Um, Suzanne Sainer is uh, is a genuine mountain woman. She's trekked both the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu in the Andes and the ascent to the Everest Base Camp in the Himalayas. And for over 23 years, she's lived alone in a remote cabin at the top of a mountain overlooking the Palmer Divide which also happens to be the setting of her rural noir novel, The Mountain. Please welcome Suzanne Sainer. Thank you. And uh, 23 years ago, when I moved to the mountain, there was a group, a self-styled vigilante group, called the Mountain Posse, and they took bets how long I'd last. And this this is the truth. Uh, And I'm proud to say that I've outlasted and I've outlived all of them. But there was a time when the Mountain Posse did rule. And this is when the book is set, which is also during the notorious October 24th blizzard of 97. Some of you might have survived through that. I was alone on the mountain at the time. Um, But this is a fictionalized version of the mountain in the past 23 years. When a mountain posse man has a grievance against another, as mountain posse men always do, when one or more of them gets cheated in a barter or plows in a logging trail so no one else can use it, sugars a gas tank, poisons a well, or slings a rattlesnake in the cab of another man's truck, the one who's got the grievance hangs a rope noose outside his own cabin. But if he's really mad, like fixin' to murder mad, he hangs the noose outside the other guy's cabin. And that guy will clear out by morning, taking nothing with him but his rifle and whatever fits in his pickup. Now there are nooses they hang like slabs of meat out front of Travis's cabin. Travis is the leader of the mountain posse, and men fear him. 
I'm Travis's woman, the one he calls Sally Ann, and nobody fears me. So there's a noose for each man. Travis has a score to settle, and 13 coils in a noose, which makes it proper for a Colorado execution. The nooses and their long ropes hang from the branches of the mighty pine trees, and in the wind they swing. A long line of trees and their nooses run clear down the logging trail until they disappear, and the trail with them. The nooses hang silhouetted against the sky and against the mountains rolling west, and they breathe like the backs of buffalo, one after another as far as the eye can see. The ropes hang under all the moods of the mountain. They are silvered under full moons and battered in hailstorms. And they are iced in snowstorms. And in the winter, they are spiky with hoarfrost. And in the spring, they're frayed from the birds pecking at the rope to line their nests. In windstorms and blizzards, the ropes fly through the air. They are possessed by the spirits of the men who once roamed these mountains, hunters and trappers, loggers and miners, men panning for gold. But mostly, the nooses hang outside Travis's cabin, and they hang quiet and still. And time slips through a noose, patiently waiting for the neck that will fill it. Time and memory of the men who done Travis wrong are those he believed had done him wrong. Of the pioneers who came west but never settled this mountain, knowing it could not rightly be done. Snow and hail and rain fall through a noose, and wind makes it fly. A mind all alone on the mountain will play tricks on you, and sometimes when it's been a stretch of alone, I see the bodies of the men dangling inside those nooses. Then it's not so bad being alone on the mountain, being alone with the dead. Thank you. That was gorgeous. Thank you. Our next reader, um, I'm going to look to her for pronunciation too. Jules Barucco? Jules Barucco. Jules, Jules is a lawyer and a writer in New York City. And tonight... <laughs> tonight she's going to read a personal essay with my favorite title of the evening, Missing Memories and Underpants, a version of, version of which appeared in Hippocampus magazine in March 2014. Please welcome Jules Barucco. Remember that time I peed my pants on stage? I asked from my mom's Barker lounger during a recent trip home. I looked from my dad to my sister, expecting a smile, a chuckle, a quick reminiscence about my precocious childhood in chickpea-sized bladder. Instead, blank stares. My dad didn't remember. My sister didn't believe me. It was not the fun family moment I had hoped for. (laughs) The incident in question allegedly happened 30 years earlier when I, a four-year-old dynamo, made my stage debut. My acting career would be short-lived. My singing voice would soon resemble a birthing cat, shattering my dreams of winning Star Search and releasing my solo album, Cool Jewel. (laughs) One might say I peaked at four. 
But it all seemed so promising on a June day in 1982 when my mom piled my big sister Katie and me into our sky blue Buick. We drove one mile to Main Street for the Sound of Music tryouts. Katie hoped to land the role of Marta Von Trapp. I only planned to play the role of perpetual tagalong, always two steps behind her, usually in a slightly smaller identical outfit. I didn't plan to audition, too. But soon I was reciting lines with the directors. I have a sore finger, I repeated in my best stage voice, my brown eyes wide below a curtain of chestnut bangs. They cast me as Gretel, Marta's little sister, but my real sister would not share my stage. She was passed over and instead joined the props crew while I stole her coveted fame. After eight rigorous weeks, showtime arrived, and I was ready. I had a perfect French braid. I had adorable costumes. I had a few big lines memorized. I also had to go to the bathroom. Bad. In the show, the Von Trapp children stand in a lineup, arms at their sides, eyes straight ahead when the captain blows his whistle. During one of those lineups, I realized I had to go. But I didn't sneak off the stage to find a bathroom. That thought never occurred to me. I had a part to play, and I would stand there with my faux siblings no matter what my insides told me. I would suffer for my art. So I did what any serious four-year-old actress would do. I tried to hold it. Literally. With my hands. (laughs) Unfortunately, neither my tiny bladder nor my tinier hands were strong enough to hold in the pee. Out it came, down my pristine white tights for all the town to see. A few memories of what followed remain undeniably clear. First, a janitor mopped up the stage. And later, my mother yelled through the dressing room without an ounce of shame, Has anyone seen Julie's underpants? I can't imagine who would have wanted them, but apparently they were missing. So should have been my dignity. Luckily, the trauma that could have resulted did not. At four years old, I possessed unshakable confidence. A bit too much, in fact. When old ladies congratulated me after a show, I didn't flash a sweet smile or curtsy in my big Von Trapp dress. Instead, I flexed my noodly biceps and yelled, I've got power! (laughs) As childhood progressed, I lost my enormous confidence. But that summer, as the four-year-old star of the small-town play, I could not be deterred. Not even with a yellow puddle pooling beneath my patent leather Mary Jeans. As I sat in my dad's family room three decades later, debating these facts with my older and wiser sister, I pulled out the powder blue playbill from 1982 and leafed through the headshots. How could they forget such a memorable event, I wondered. I peed myself, under the spotlights, in front of the whole damn town. Didn't I? Or could my sister be right? Is it possible that it didn't happen? She attended each show, the hardworking crew member, handing out props and costumes just off stage right. My infamous I've Got Power pronouncement left such an impression that Kate reenacted it in her speech at my wedding. If her spotlight-stealing sister had peed on stage, Kate would remember. Suddenly I questioned everything I thought I knew about that day and the entirety of my childhood. Did it happen at a rehearsal and not in front of an audience? Did I imagine it or worse yet make it up and convince myself it was real? Were my recollections of that night just distorted memories, altered slightly from year to year, like a bad game of telephone I played with myself? Or did my 70-something father just not remember, and my formerly upstage sister still begrudge me my fame? As I pondered these questions, my chest tightened from the physical pain that can sometimes accompany a metaphorical broken heart. 
I was not hurting because they didn't remember, nor was I upset by the prospect that I had invented my most vivid childhood memory. My heart ached because I realized that I would never know what really happened on that stage. The only person likely to corroborate my story, my loyal stage mother, was dead. The hardest part of losing someone is often not the obvious, the empty place at my dad's dinner table on Thanksgiving, the anniversary of the day she died in August, her birthdays that pass without a new candle. It's those unexpected moments that steal my breath. Each time I realize that a piece of history was lost with her, a buried treasure for which there no longer exists a key. It's never knowing whether I peed my pants on stage because I was committed to my art. It's never knowing whether a loving mother called out for the safe return of her small child's wet underpants. It's knowing life will be filled with questions without answers because she's gone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jules. Um, our next reader is uh, Gemma Webster. We're- Gemma Webster was born and raised in Colorado, and she's gearing up for her second year in the book project. Um, she holds a bachelor's degree in Italian language and literature from CU Boulder, of all things. Please, <laughs> please give a warm welcome to... Please give a warm welcome to Gemma Webster and her mom. Erica recommended beverages when you're reading. I'm going to take her up on it because I got the cold that's going around, and I'm hoping the voice will stay. But I think it sounds kind of cool, as it is right now. Okay. To some of you, this might sound familiar, but hopefully not super familiar, because it's been edited like one or 70 times. (laughs) This is the opening of my novel, Taken Away, and it will be different the next time I read it. (laughs) Once upon a time, not that long ago, a wooden girl was kidnapped. She was asleep when they came. There were two of them. They padded through her dark room, seeing their way by the light of the digital clock, each step animal soft and quick. Outside, wind-whipped snow pelted the window. The soft steppers whispered together as they opened and closed her dresser drawers. Still, the girl did not try to run. The wooden girl was not afraid. Adrenaline no longer flooded her brain. She waited instead to see what they wanted, confident she could give it. This is a puppet's greatest talent. Wake up, said a woman's voice that rumbled slightly in her throat. The other turned on the overhead light. Visible now were a man and a woman wearing matching uniforms. Navy blue bomber jackets with a golden shield hiding each heart. Are you cops? Your father hired us to come take you away. He pointed to the woman. This is Warren. I am Mr. Fox. Mr. Fox had auburn hair with a blaze of blonde that ran from the top of his head down through his eyebrow and beard. (laughs) He looked at the wooden girl before him, examining her face, chest, hips, and feet. The wooden girl did her own inspection. She decided he was probably stronger than he looked. It was the hands. The fingers were short, but they looked like they could crush rocks into sand. He laughed, 
a little huh. Warren handed the wooden girl a stack of her own clothes topped with, a spring, with spring break pink flip-flops. They were bound at the toes with a dangling palm tree tag. Get dressed, she said. <laughs> Mr. Fox left the room. Warren watched while the girl struggled into clothes beneath blankets. These won't stay on my feet, she said. The girl's right foot looked almost normal, except there was a large gap where her second toe should be. Guess you'll be moving nice and slow, then. Warren clasped handcuffs around her wrist and pushed the girl toward the door where Mr. Fox waited. Are we going to do this the easy way? Mr. Fox stretched his fingers and closed them into fists. His knuckles cracked, or the hard way. A gold ring on his pinky winked in the light. She knew he wanted her to kick and scream so that he could do whatever required his ready hands. Out of habit, the wooden girl complied. She kicked him in the shins and ran toward her father's door. Daddy, she said. The wooden girl tripped as the sandal moved sideways under her foot. Warren grabbed her arm to keep her from falling. That just won't do, Warren said. The light beneath father's door was broken by the pacing shadows of his feet. Mr. Fox grabbed the wooden girl and hoisted her over his shoulder. Her bones clanked and jostled like unruling kindling as she was carried out the front door. Mr. Fox plunked her into the back seat of the car. He belted her in, her hands still cuffed behind her. Warren came out of the house carrying two prescription bottles. The pills rattled as she walked, the sound a careless rolling of dice. "'You're a tough one, aren't you?' said Warren." Most of the girls we swipe are blubbering by now. Is that what you want? she asked. There is something lovely about a girl in tears, said Mr. Fox. <laughs> Especially a tough one. Thank you very much, Gemma. Um, we're going to get sent out into the evening with uh, one more poet tonight. Um, Wait, so, so Gemma was the penultimate? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Susanna. Uh, after that penultimate reading, uh, we'll be sent out tonight um, with uh, one last uh, reading from... Uh, uh, an exquisite lighthouse poet um, but before that she comes up I just want to take the opportunity right now to thank everybody for showing up tonight and being such a wonderful beating heart audience you guys are great and um, thanks for supporting your fellow students these these um, participant readings are my favorite part of LitFest um, and they're always so rich with experience and tonight was a perfect example of that. So thank you very much. And, th and thanks to all of you who read tonight also. Um, our last reader of the evening is Jocelyn Green. Um, Jocelyn Green is a poet, and she will read three poems tonight. Uh, her po the poems are Letter for a Boy That Won't Be Read Because It Won't Be Sent. Nope. Don't. Okay. She's going to be reading th three She's going to be reading somewhere between one and four poems tonight. And the titles of those poems are as yet uh, unrevealed. Please welcome 
one of Lighthouse's great, great poets, Jocelyn Green. Thanks. Okay, so I will read two poems. Um, the change came because, of course, we all think, or I think lots of us think, the thing we just wrote is really the killer one that really happened to get it right. I'll wind up with that. But first, a tree lay on the occasion of the present decade. Among the missing are the pheromones on the warm skin of possibility, despite the ageless orange of traffic cones among the missing are the pheromones and all the hours that were no more than loans. So much has sped away from you and me. Among the missing are the pheromones on the warm skin of possibility. And to send you out, we wait to hear the milling stills late at the lounge, electric air, down draft of ozone, drums, she's here, intensity, velocity, she's saying, chasing them down the street, racing down alleys, shouting out words, drawing in crowds with the line she is stringing on fierce, fast beats. By subway, by pothole, in hail and rain, vein by needle vein, go deeper, she's saying. No, you can be noble, capacious, courageous. She raps about love, about tree bark, and benches, and meaning, and fate, seeking, finding, binding wounds in words. She feels so much inside, sees so much outside herself, holds it close, though it's sandpaper rough, to the touch no rougher. It's craters, baked by the sun, raked by the wind, rent as we all are rent, by the troubled intent and the tangle of parts heaven sent us because who knows? Who knows? The rest of us don't. Surrounded, astounded, silenced by beauty and terror, the errors of air. Speak up, we plead. We wait to hear. We need to feel the worn wide planks beneath our feet reverberate Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible the Scientific Cultural and Facilities District the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks Colorado Creative Industries Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.